welcome to episode two of the Abandon Normal Devices podcast. In this week's episode, artist Aura Satz, composer and musician Sarah Devachi, and author Harry Sword are in conversation about the project The Grief Interval. Thank you so much and I'm so happy to be here and um, maybe I should just say that um, well my name is Aura Satz as Luke said and I'm a white woman in my 40s uh, I have brown curly hair and I'm wearing a black t-shirt and I'm uh, broadcasting to you from my bedroom um, I wanted to suggest that we run this conversation as a kind of three-way flow and Maybe just to start, I wanted to introduce the site that features in the film. Um, <clears throat> so Fiddler's Ferry is a coal-fired power station, and it originally opened in 1971 and took water from the River Mercy. And it closed on the 31st of March 2020, after nearly 50 years of supplying electricity. Um, the demolition was due to begin in 2020, and it can take up to seven years. Um, this is due to the fact that they'll have to use explosives to pull down the famous cooling towers, which you see featured in the film, which are an amazing 114-meter-high um, architectural structures. And obviously, ecological studies will need to be prepared first to analyze the impact on breeding birds and other protected species in the area, but also there is asbestos that will need to be removed by specialists. Um, so when I first thought of this project, it was really in relation to a larger project I've been working in for several years now on siren sounds. And for this project, I've been inviting composers, musicians to think with me and try to reimagine the siren sound and kind of open it up to a recalibration um, kind of imaginative, speculative idea around how we might shift the frameworks of how we understand emergency, but also how we understand our responses to the emergency. And with regards to this site, when I was invited to, to make a piece that was kind of more site-specific, um, I immediately was struck by these incredible cooling towers, um, but also by the way in which they look like kind of organ pipes, almost. Um, and because I knew they were decommissioned, I had this idea that I could maybe play sounds from within them, or that I could think of them even just metaphorically as these kind of incredible, um, kind of large, monolithic, to use Harry's word, um, monolithic kind of musical instruments. And so I immediately thought of Sara Davachi, who, um, whose work I'm a... I'm a huge fan of her work and her um, kind of deep listening practice and sustained notes and work with, with organs in resonant spaces. And so I invited her to respond to the project, to think about sirens. And within this um, invitation, I suggested different iterations of the siren. So on the one hand, there's the siren as a preemptive warning, you know, suggesting that 
there is some kind of danger that you can avert by heeding the siren's call. But also it's used for commemorative purposes and to kind of um, to kind of mark a silence, you know, and around the idea of grief, which was really um, present in my mind for many reasons. But obviously the pandemic is kind of foregrounded. And so that was the invitation initially. Um, and Harry's book has been incredibly influential. Um, I think it's very recent. It's only been out uh, in circulation for a few months. As far as I'm aware, though, I know it's a much longer um, research project. And there were so many different points in the book that resonated with my thinking, with the project. And so I thought this would be a really great opportunity to invite Harry into conversation. Sarah features in the book as well. So there's some nice kind of... Um, kind of woven connections here. So um, I suppose I'm going to open up, um, when I said a, a three-way flow, what I was thinking of was that maybe we could each ask each other a question and just kind of circulate in that way across the screen and through our voices. Um, so I wanted to start with um, the sound composition because, in effect, that, that came first, and I used it. So I kind of provided a prompt for a piece of music and a kind of score of sorts by saying, think of it as a siren. But then I mentioned the site and described it and sent images and, and kind of, um, and waited for the music to come in order to finalize how I would structure the film, how long it would be. So the music came first and is a kind of driving engine of the film. Um, so maybe we could start, Sarah, if you could talk a little bit about the thinking behind the composition. You mentioned this idea of the pianto and the lament, which has been really resonant with my thinking as well. So maybe that's a good opening um, point for us. Yeah, thank you, Aura. Uh, well, so my name's Sarah Devachi. Um, I have short, dark hair, wearing headphones, uh, and I'm in my studio in front of a white wall background. <laughs> Um, yeah, the funny thing was that when, um, you got in touch with me or I had had this idea and I don't know exactly how far back it dates, but, um, there's this idea in music theory of this grief interval, um, which is the semitone, the minor second and specifically a descending minor second. And historically it's just been associated with the idea of grief or a lament and I've always had it sort of flagged in my you know composition notes um, that it was something I wanted to kind of focus on in some way but I'd never really had the proper opportunity to do it and so when Aura got in touch with me um, just mentioning the idea of a siren less as a call to attention and more as like a pause for reflection that's kind of how I was thinking of it um, it my brain went immediately to this idea of the grief interval um, and exploring that. Um, I think it expanded when I was working on the piece, it expanded a bit beyond that. And the, the grief interval itself ended up being sort of the transitionary movement between different parts of the composition. Um, and yeah, you know, when I was, it was hard because usually when I do, um, things that are specific to a space, like usually with organs, with pipe organs, it's such a direct connection between the acoustic space 
and what ends up coming out of the instrument. Um, it's different because in those situations, I'm actually there and I am responding in a sense to the what's happening acoustically. And in this situation, I couldn't do that. Um, and when I saw the pictures and the completed film, the space was uh, like overwhelmingly larger than I was expecting. I had an idea of what it was like. And I, of course, I've never been inside of a, a cooling tower um, or anything on that similar man-made scale. Um, but one of the things that I was thinking about when I saw it was that it was this interesting feeling between this obviously man-made object and then this almost like inhuman scale to it like it, it reminded me of like a natural like a mountain or something like that that's just sort of incomprehensibly large and uh yeah i mean there's a lot that you can say about that in terms of instruments as well i think sounds you know we often tend to the way that we separate the sound that we're hearing from the means of production of it like how what's you know actually happening um to produce that sound is an interesting thing to me and especially with organs it's such a um such an overlooked aspect of the instrument that there's all of these really specific man-made parts to it but the sound that actually generates from it is something that goes like above and beyond all of that so that was something that was initially in my mind um and ideas about, um, you know, more generally about sirens and the idea of sound as something that can kind of create that pause. Like I began the piece um, with church bells that I didn't want to necessarily create that trope throughout the entire piece. But I thought that it, it was sort of an elegant way to reiterate that idea of bells as sort of this thing that's um, announcing something that's happening or creating this um, this framing for something else to occur. So yeah right. it's it's interesting hearing you talk about the, the the church bells starting a piece um so i mean something i write about in the book is is the the kind of difference i think between um the sacred drone and what you could i suppose describe as the industrial drone it strikes me that so often within sacred spaces either by design very often by design we're seeking to maximize the reverberant potential of that space, you know, in order to bring ourselves closer to spirituality, closer to God, closer to each other. Um, but then when you have a look at a space, like the space we've just seen, it's so diametrically opposed to that in the sense that, of the, as, you, as you were saying, in the sense of the scale, um, it's a kind of inhuman space. Mm-hmm. And I found I found it interesting seeing that from the inside, you know, it was almost, I think it, for me, it was almost like looking at the pyramids or looking at a sacred space somewhere that the, the meaning, the old meaning of the site was removed because it's almost like trespassing, you know, how, how often do you see inside a cooling tower? How often does anyone see inside? I mean, you know, it's apart from the builders and a few engineers, it's, it's this completely um, sense of removal from, from its, from its function, you know? And I think that thinking about sound and industry, um, the, the feeling I had was was of overwhelming kind of dread, but also a a, a fascination, you know. And I, I I used to have a dream when I was a kid 
of swimming through girders in an oil rig and looking up at the rig and feeling completely dwarfed by that, but also being slightly attracted to that. You know, I think there's, I think when we're dealing with structures like this, we're drawn towards them, perhaps because of their inhumanity. I think it's, um, that's what the film spoke. <laughs> Sorry, um, I've got slight connection issues, there we go. Yeah, I mean, and something I was wondering, Aura, I mean, the thinking about the film's relationship to sound and going inside the towers, I mean, how how did you actually get there physically? Because I don't think people, people for anyone that doesn't understand the process, I'd like, just like to understand how, how you actually did it. I mean, I understand you were using flying drones and so on. I mean, how did you get in there? Yeah, so there are some slightly vertiginous um, stairs to get into that bit, which is about halfway through, I think. Anyway, it's yeah. kind of in the middle, so we're not at the very bottom. Oh. Um, and then there's that little, um, what's featured at the opening of the film is like a kind of bridge, almost like this corridor that is yeah. the bit you can walk on and the rest you can't walk on. And that, that bit surrounding is full of asbestos as well. Um, yeah. yeah, we used um, drone cameras. It was a real privilege to be inside. The acoustics were incredible. So I kept imagining your piece, Sarah, like it's potential sound resounding in there. But I suppose um, before I got to the site, you know, I wasn't able to do a kind of, I wasn't able to visit it in advance due to COVID and all kinds of other reasons. And so I had some ideas, and I suppose this, the main one was this idea of circularity. And I was thinking of a few different things in relation to that. One is the siren sound and its kind of rise and fall, um, or in some cases it's kind of broadcasting across and around. Um, but also I was thinking of like wax cylinders or kind of um, – vinyl records and this idea of the yeah. groove and the kind of sound, you know, this this drone sound kind of playing or, or Tibetan singing bowl even. Yeah, yeah, very much. So I'm kind of going around and I had a feeling that the circularity of the camera movements would work well with the sound and kind of activate it and modulate it. And really that's something that I'm interested in as an artist that works with sound and film is like how each can offset or there's a kind of friction where they can push each other into a different um into a different kind of experience in that the way that you're looking is um inflected by how you're listening and vice versa and so for me you know i've often worked with a soundtrack as the first kind of starting point and then and then the film and so the score is as i said earlier it's the engine of the film yeah. But I was wondering for each of you, I suppose, um, Harry, you know, you've done a lot of very intense listening. You describe it beautifully. Yeah. Talk of kind of listening, you know, maybe with low lights or your eyes closed and, and kind of really immersing yourself in the sound. And Sarah as well, like you're coming at it from an experiential perspective. But I wondered, I mean, you've talked a little bit about how the architect, the imposing architecture shifted where you were coming from in the first place but I wondered if there was something else like for me um there are certain parts in the sound especially towards the second half and at the very end where the 
films, there's a possible pulse in the grief interval um, where the pulse of the sound becomes foregrounded to me in a way that it wasn't on the first listening. And obviously because I edited the film, I've listened to it many, many times and I start to hear tiny ripples or undertoes again to use um, (laughs) but you know it it just these kind of refractions start to emerge in the listening that I'm hearing because the visuals are setting a kind of counter rhythm Um, that's something I feel I feel happens quite effectively for me in my process and I was wondering if that resonates with yours or your experience yeah uh, Harry did do you want me to go first? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, that's that's interesting that you say that. I mean, as somebody who, um, you know, I've played a lot of festivals and things like that where the uh, idea is, oh, the sound is not enough. We should add some visuals to it. And that has always bothered me because it's not... I don't understand the point of adding something that's not intentional, something that isn't with that in mind that it's going to work with the, with the sound and and having that idea that the sound is just not enough on its own, that people need something to look at. And I feel like on the opposite side of that, the most like magical moments, I hate that word magical, but it works. Um, The most magical moments that you have when you combine a visual element and a sonic element is when they are like symbiotic when they do do that, when you notice things in the sound that you wouldn't have before and likewise with the visual element. And I also felt that one thing I was going to say about the visual element, um, uh, you know, it's an interesting, um, the way that people think about minimalism in general and minimalist art, or at least one of the ideas that I like to subscribe to is, you know, just this idea that like, you kind of are taking things out of context. Like when you look at, you know, a minimalist painting, like a Mark Rothko or something, you're just looking at a shape and a color essentially. And that's not all that you see. And the, the experience is not limited to that, but it, it forces you to remove any other associations that you have with that and really just give your attention to the color itself or the shape itself and explore that and what that feels like. And I noticed a lot of moments, there was a really nice balance. I thought in the the drone footage that there would be times where you'd see like the, you know, the inside of the, the cooling tower and you would get that. I, I think of it as the same kind of pulse that, that you're talking about or of, of sort of the intricacies of the like brickwork on it or, but, you know, the details in that that you're actually seeing that you wouldn't necessarily focus on without maybe having the sound give it that space to come out. And then likewise, when you would see, you know, from the um, bottom up, having just that like really stark image of the circle and that, you know, juxtaposition of, of inside and outside, um, that it was a similar feeling to me that it really, like Harry said, it just removes so much context and creates a space for for just viewing it as this other kind of thing in a way i think it's like kind of a romantic gesture to offer such a otherwise depressing building you know at the end of its life so to speak you know this opportunity to exist as something else yeah i just wanted to interject though that like the the grief is not towards the architecture like obviously and the like what I liked about the idea of the interval when you mentioned it in terms of like music theory was that this 
architecture is in a pause. It's in a state of um, kind of interval. It's an interval between paradigms of like energy and fossil fuel extraction. Mm-hmm. And it's too little, too late. And so like, although I'm really pleased that the film is like, in some ways it's much more beautiful than I thought it would be. <laughs> um I kind of, when I thought of the grief interval, I thought of it as like what we do as we are in this moment of the Anthropocene kind of grieving what feels like the end of the world. And in that grief, how that grief is an interval that takes us towards the next steps or towards action. So that's that's partly my framing of it. But I'm um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. And Harry, you were about to respond to Sarah, but I just wanted to like I was just going to say that I, I, I found myself looking at individual bricks throughout the film and that was and they just just these individual bricks alone but they're part of this huge almost it's, I mean on, on one level it's a kind of monstrosity in the sense of what it did and what it did until so recently I was amazed actually to read about it and it only decommissioned in 2020 I was thinking mm. oh you know some old power station that was probably decommissioned in the 80s 2020 and yet it looks it, it, it's so difficult to um to imagine it you know pumping out fossil fuels but it was until last year and it but i found my, my gaze kind of moving towards the individual bricks and then i found myself thinking well i can actually appreciate this structure on its own terms now which is just like i say almost like like looking at the pyramids or looking at some some in, incredible, rather beautiful structure, you know. And, it, and it's mm-hmm. um, it's it's it, it was an interesting. Inter- it, it, it wasn't it was it wasn't the reaction that I was expecting to have. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, in some of the sections of your book where you talk about kind of architectures that you know we don't know what their original intention was, we don't know if they were made no. resonant or they just happened yeah. to be resonant, and um. For me, the way I was thinking about this space as like a kind of toxic, inherently toxic space. Exactly. Exactly. About to be demolished. Um, So, you know, there's this um, phrasing in the film, which is kind of an architectural vault frozen in um, undetonated disaster. And that's because I've also been thinking about nuclear waste deposits and the same problem, you know, like, will they be the pyramids that in the future, you know, our descendants, whether they speak our language or not, how are we going to warn them of like these vaults of toxicity that if they're on earth, then, you know, it's like an Indiana Jones movie, you know, what's going to be you know, all, all all architecture reveals intention, and and I think the the building you were talking about in the book, the Hypogeum, is for anyone not aware of the Hypogeum, it's in Malta, just outside Valletta. It's a Neolithic burial chamber. It actually predates the pyramids. It's um, an extraordinary structure. It was discovered, in, I believe, in 1902, and six stories down, it's it's basically carved out of lime limestone. Um, and within the hypergym, there's this chamber, a small room that's called, people call it the Oracle Chamber. And the resonance in the Oracle Chamber is particularly strong. It's like 14, 15 seconds. But along the wall, along the far wall, there's a little panel, which looks very much like an acoustic resonator panel. And there's been a lot of debate as to whether this space was acoustically 
engineered, as it were, or whether it was perhaps acoustically engineered after the fact, after people realised that there was an incredible natural resonance down in the hypogeum anyway. Um, but in terms of intent, yeah, I mean, the you know, the intention behind a, a, a huge power station and the intention behind a sacred space couldn't be they couldn't be more different, you know, and it's it's just so so interesting listening to to, to different responses to to sacred spaces and to industrial spaces. Um, I mean, I think in in terms of the hypogeum, I think it's highly unlikely that anybody going down into that space wouldn't have noticed the incredible resonance. And given that we're talking five thousand years ago, it may have been the only time that you would have ever experienced that kind of resonance. I mean, in modern life, every time we go into a multi-story car park, we've got resonance. Every time we go into, you know, um, the, the stairwell of an office, we've got kind of a five-second reverb, you know. Um, but if the only time you ever experienced that was down in a, this burial chamber, which was, you know, it didn't need to be there. It was there for a purpose. It was there for an intention to, to I think it's safe to say, to, to, to remember the dead, to honour the dead, you know. So I'm sure that... I'm sure it was used in, in in some respects. Whether or not it was acoustically engineered is a is another matter. Um, but um, it, it, it's interesting, you know, the response to the natural resonance of industrial spaces and how beautiful they can be. I mean, I know in, I know Sarah. In a lot of your work, you, you you've worked in 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 interesting spaces, and I I, I think we we were talking earlier or about um, Pauline Oliveris, you know and the way that she used the cistern in Washington yeah. State, um, Fort Warden, which has a natural resonance of around 45 seconds. And that's an unbelievably foreboding, really creepy kind of place, you know, but the music she was creating was absolutely stunningly beautiful. And I just love the idea of repurposing a space which is which perhaps had initially had an ugly intention or, or a violent intention or, or, or a deeply destructive intention. And I think mm -hmm. so much amazing work has come out of that. And it's just, it, I think we're drawn to these spaces. I think we are drawn to these spaces, you know, um, and it's just interesting to see people's reactions to them. So, yeah. yeah I think that's, yeah, I, that was sort of an unexpected reaction I had when I saw the film, like I said, that it was, it like, it gave the structure a, a different purpose for a moment uh, before it's, you know, imminent destruction. And I, I don't know if it's something that um, either of you thought about, but one thing I couldn't, I don't know, I don't, it, in a way I felt like kind of sad for the structure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, especially knowing that, you know, it's different with, um, you know, centuries old structures or even like a car park or something like that, that, you know, it, it doesn't have this connotation of destruction and, you know, just this sort of overwhelmingly negative connotation. And even in the way that um, the cooling tower is going to be dismantled, which is via explosions, <laughs> basically just being uh, imploded. Um, yeah. yeah, there was... Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, there's a bit of interference. Um, there are lots of, um, I think, similar industrial spaces that have been repurposed as, you know, cultural spaces. Or I think I saw yeah. a nuclear power plant that was turned into a, a kind of, um, what are those things called? Like an merry-go-round. Anyway, but um, 
what I think is really interesting in some of the things that you're saying is I hadn't thought of it in this way, but I think the film is also a kind of burial site for the for the piece of architecture. It's to kind of commemorate it and hold yeah. it as a space for a question. Mm-hmm. A question that I really feel like, you know, we're in this moment um, on on so many fronts. So not just the time frame of the pandemic, but, you know, prior to this, the buildup of our understanding of the immensity of climate catastrophe and where we're heading. So we're, we have this moment where we we're both hopeful and totally kind of apocalyptic about the future. And yeah. so we have these dinosaur behemoth kind of structures, relics of this bygone age of industry where industry meant progress and future and future and, you know, like new communities built around industry. Um, and I think now the understanding is that those communities were, were kind of built around threat as well. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. and that, the toxicity, you know, like the the understanding, the kind of scar of understanding all the damage that's been done and trying to imagine ways forward, trying to think into that kind of distant, unimaginable future is a kind of exercise in itself. So I think, like for me, that was the, that was the, the prompt and the curiosity towards the building is like, yeah, it's totally, it was totally amazing to be inside, inside yeah. it around it it was really beautiful and kind of intoxicating and in that way and at the same time there was this real sense of of an ending of an ending of an era and an uncertainty around how we face forward which is what my my kind of siren project is about and so this kind of encapsulation of both this sense of dread towards the future but also mourning or grief towards something that's happened or that may happen is Kind of that space that I was trying to inhabit, and actually, um, when the music came through, Sarah, I think I wrote this to you. I really felt that it spoke to me in so many ways because it took the grief that I've been feeling, you know, personal, uh, ecological, you know, just on all on all these different fronts, and it kind of it articulated it in a way that was really soothing as mm-hmm. well like listening to it has been very healing even as I go deeper into the grief mm-hmm. um, and so it's been a really beautiful kind of um, both the making of the film but editing it like listening again and again going deeper and deeper and deeper into the layers of the sound um, it's just been a real privilege I've been really grateful to have that thank you thank you yeah. I appreciate that I mean yeah and it's interesting in a lot of my work um you know, not all of it is like intentionally mournful. I think it just ends up being that way a lot of it. Um, but of the things that where that idea does come into uh, play, it's it's always been interesting to me that there is that um, dichotomy almost of like there's the grief aspect of it, which has all the obvious connotations of, of sadness and lament and all of that. But then there's a, a, an aspect of like comfort about it there's there's this this um not like pleasurable but you know there's there's something that you need in a sense you know something that is good for you um that comes out of it and i mean another um visual connection that i was making when i was watching the film um 
And Harry, you were kind of mentioning something similar, which I thought was interesting. Um, you know, I mentioned that it uh, reminded me of a mountain, of like the the feeling of a mountain. But another thing that I felt was, um, you know, I remember like as a kid, I would always be scared of large bodies of water because I just, the okay. idea of being so deep under something was terrifying to me. But at the same time, it was also intriguing in the idea that it's like, you know, it's just this thing that's overwhelming you and you kind of lose yeah. yourself in it. And it's that's kind of an interesting idea, especially in relation to nature and, and, and things that um, are just there naturally. Um, and I had a similar sensation every time the, the camera um, went to the top. I, I just got this feeling, this simultaneous feeling of like suffocation in a sense of just being so lost in something so much bigger than me but also oh like this is kind of comfortable and there's something uh womb-like about to use that term yeah, I guess. Like, <laughs> you know what i mean much. there's something like yeah i, th uh, I think yeah, that, that that's so so interesting because I, I think so often when when we're dealing with with sustained tones and so on and the drone very a, a very common response is, is for people to say exactly that it's it's a kind of sense of womb-like immersion i think and if we actually yeah. do if we actually take it back to the womb the first sound we hear well there's two sounds there's the sound of the rushing of the maternal blood and there's the beating of the maternal heart so i think we've got a kind of a, a connection from day dot with these two sounds with the four four and with mm -hmm. the drone and, and there was a study actually, it was done, I believe, at Cornell University in the early 90s, and they, they measured the level of sound in utero that the fetus was 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 exposed to, and it was 80 decibels, which is like, wow. you know, it's really loud. It's like yeah. a car. <laughs> so it's it's not just, we, we have this idea of, of, of the womb as being this kind of really quiet, kind of chilled out environment. Actually, sonically, it's very, very loud down there. And, um, yeah. and that's the other thing about the drone is that, the idea of eternity you know it's it, i think that's something that everyone no matter the religion no matter the culture everyone has to reckon with the idea of eternity and i've never i've never met anybody whose head isn't completely spun by by the concept you know it's just like it's, it's incomprehensible yeah human is to be is to have the mind blown by the concept of something not ending because we because we're we're painfully aware every day that our lives will end you know and that's mm -hmm. that's a big being human we know we're on a journey that's going to end and that's i think that feeds into to to a lot of a lot of music um, that makes use of sustained tone is the idea of yeah. eternity and the idea of a circle. You know, yeah. you're removing the kind of traditional markers of time, removing verse, chorus, verse, removing the bridge, removing all of these structures that people can hang um, their, what's the word, that, that people can kind of hang their, um, the, if you know what's coming, you know what's you know what's coming. You know, yeah. if you if you don't know what's coming, you're put in a very different headspace. You know, it's so yeah. always in the sense of if I'm at a kind of stadium rock show, the idea is that you know I'm in a crowd of eighty thousand people, and here comes the bridge, and here comes the chorus, and it's a communal mm -hmm. experience, and it's predicated on the idea that everyone knows precisely what's coming, and you pretty much know what the person next to you is thinking, what and feeling. You know, whereas. Mm -hmm one of your shows or say you go and see earth or someone it's totally different I haven't got a clue what the person next to you is experiencing yeah. and i love that i love that it's such an individual response 
Yeah, yeah. I agree. We have to wrap up in a second. Um, but I just maybe wanted to end on um, another person who features in your book, and I know is a huge influence for all of us here, is Eliane Radig. And yeah. Yeah, her idea that like everything is vibration and the music is just yeah. a little cutout really of what is ongoing. So that yeah. idea of the drone as a kind of little framing of, of the continuity of vibration, you know, whether they're microscopic and whether they're perceptible or whether they're mm-hmm. completely kind of, you know. Yeah, I mean, that feeds, feeds, right, back to, feeds right back to the on, you know, if you, if you look at Hindu theology, Buddhist theology, the idea is that it's, it's sound as god so the sound it's from the om that everything else springs you know and it's it's so it's right there in in, in theology there's a brilliant quote i heard the other day I, I i would have included it in the book if i'd heard it in time it was from shane mcgowan he was saying look i don't write songs i just pluck them out of the ether and i have to get it before paul simon gets it you know so it's like you just gotta you just gotta kind of be receptive to it and it, that kind of feeds into what you we're saying about um, Radik, you know, it's uh, yeah. the idea of vibration and the idea of being open to to what's happening around you is is yeah. I think quite intrinsic. I mean, how, how do you feel about that, Sarah, in your in your composition and in your practice? Um, do- I think yeah, I think we have to stop now. I'm afraid oh, because we've run out of time. But um, but let's continue the conversation another time. Um, maybe off screen. Um, This has been such a wonderful opportunity to exchange ideas with you and sounds and processes and experiences. So, um, yeah, I'm really grateful. Thank you so, so much. And um, Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for thinking of me for this. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Abandoned Normal Devices podcast and thank you to Arts Council England for supporting this production. If you like the podcast, please do subscribe and give us a rating, share it with friends and listen back in the future. Thank you.